0: Well, good morning. Uh, Before we begin, just a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, Apparently, I'm getting older. I didn't realize this, but I went to the eye doctor, and apparently he has decided in his infinite wisdom that reading things close up is more difficult for me now that I'm older so I have an appendage now in order to read the Bible and not skip words and mix things up because apparently I haven't been able to see so I've got my nice little old people bifocals. So uh yeah celebrate that with me as I get older. Yeah, praise the Lord, right one. <laughs> The only reason to celebrate is it's one day closer to Jesus, but uh, nonetheless, I, I realize that I'm, I'm, I'm failing, and my body is failing, and it just is what it is. Uh, so anyway, th- this morning, we're, we're jumping in, and we're going to be talking about the, the biblical doctrine of adoption, and I'm going to suggest to you this morning that this is, this is central Uh, to the gospel. And I would also suggest to you this morning that um, the reality of it, I think, has been, I wouldn't say necessarily misunderstood, but the fullness of what the biblical doctrine of adoption does has not necessarily taken up root and been the source of vibrancy in our faith. Uh, I think we've added it kind of uh, every now and then as a, sort of an appendage and a reality of what takes place. We think of placing our faith in Jesus Christ and we're forgiven for our sins, but the, the reality of what that means and the extent of what that does is, is so significant that it would be impossible this morning to, to mine the depths of the biblical doctrine of adoption, but I'm going to tell you this morning that I'm going to describe to you and read for you the biblical doctrine of adoption in one sentence. It's not a sentence that I wrote, and and in the Bible that you have, it's actually 11 verses. But Paul decided in the epistle to the Ephesians that he would just kind of continue to expound over and over again about the significance of this in one long, drawn-out, run-on sentence. And that's what he does. And in the original language, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, you get Paul setting the stage and real kind of filling out the fullness of, of what it means to be adopted as a son or daughter in, a, uh, in Christ and, and the significance of what that means in, in numerous different areas. And so let me suggest to you this morning that I would say that the two of the major problems that have been addressed and tried to be wrestled with throughout all of human history are the problem of identity and the problem of evil. This morning, when we talk about the biblical doctrine of adoption, we're addressing the problem of identity. We're, we're wrestling with the reality of three of the most pertinent realities that I think we need to dive into. Who we are, whose we are, and why We've been created. What's the purpose behind our own life and existence? Who we are, whose we are, and then the significance of what it means and the purpose behind our existence. And so identity is one of those core things. But before we jump into the text, and I put my bifocals on so I can read the Bible uh, in new and fresh ways, um, I want us to to understand a bit of the, the scope of this epistle. So Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus, i.e. the title Ephesians, and and Ephesus is is likely the fourth largest city in the, the ancient world, but it's the hub of religious expression. And so what you have is you have this conglomeration of individuals from all walks of life, and there would not be a pattern of sin or struggle that exists in our world that didn't exist exist in the city of Ephesus. So there was idol worship, there was gossip, there was rampant sexual sin, there was just an enormous perversion of life and uh, areas of um, Uh, sin and seediness, like the underbelly of the human existence lived and breathed in the city of Ephesus. But so did the church. And I think what Paul does in this epistle specifically is ensure that the reality of that's exactly where the church should be planted. The church belongs in the center place of where darkness lives and breathes. The, The church itself, as God had manufactured it, gifted it, built it is that which restrains evil and communicates light in the midst of darkness. And so what we see in the city of Ephesus and and Christians who are struggling to communicate and and share the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ are are meeting not only resistance and persecution, but they're figuring out what it means to live a gospel-centered life in the midst of a culture that has nothing and no interest in the gospel whatsoever. There's a level of abandonment and sin and just perversion and dysfunction that the society itself has capitalized on. It is likely that the challenges in the city of Ephesus are very similar to the challenges you and I face in America. Like there is a connection between the reality of the church has been called to be a lighthouse. We have been strategically planted in a world that is increasingly dark where there is destruction on the forefront of life itself. And in the context of those things, what we're being salted with on a regular basis is what is our identity? As, as people, and ultimately as a church, who, who, who are we? And what difference does that ultimately really make in terms of how we frame, live, and think about life? Around us. So, when we're thinking about getting in and moving into this place of darkness, and even the noble reality of the church being planted in the most difficult places across the globe and strategically competing and wrestling with all of these theologies that are completely uh, contrary to the truth of God's word, that have minimized the reality of absolute truth, that that have allowed the the functional sense of, of identity, like Jared talked about last week, that we are not self determined and that we live in a culture where we're telling people that you can just decide who you are. And this sense of, of confusion and darkness is specifically where the church has a role. But in order to get to that role, we need to understand fundamentally who we are, whose we are, and for what purpose have we been created. That serves as the the buttress, the framework, the foundation for which we understand how we marshal the resources that we've been given in Christ to move into a world that is darkness. But it also gives us a level of understanding when we face the most difficult times in our own personal life and catastrophic times in the society in which we live, where are we anchored? I think in this one sentence, that I'm going to read for us this morning, Paul gives us the scope of the answers. Here we go. Yes, I know it's embarrassing, but what are you going to do? So it's life and I'm old. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse three. Man, I can see things clearly now. This is amazing. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we stand now at this place where where Paul is is speaking to a specific culture that is competing against the truth of Christianity, the truth of the the knowledge of who Jesus is and and what Jesus has done on on behalf of those who have placed their faith in him. And essentially what he's getting at is there are are essential, central things that we regularly need to be reminded of because we realize that the voices of the culture and the voices of darkness are only going to grow louder. And so we as followers of Jesus Christ need to regularly be reminded of who we are in Jesus, whose we are in Jesus, and what the purpose of our life and existence really is. And so he starts off the beginning of this text by identifying for us who we are. Remember who you are. And here's how he describes it. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. So you get this magnificent reality that before the foundations of the world, the avenue for your familial reality, your identification of who you are at your very core, is primarily a son or daughter of God. In Christ, you are loved and valued as much as the Father loves the Son. There is a sense of uniting with the magnificent truth of God's compassion and passion and work in the life of Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that you have been adopted, received, experienced the familial reality of what it means to be in relationship as though we can now, through faith in Christ, actually, honestly, doctrinally, and biblically call God, our Father. There is no greater reality than the reality of that intimacy that exists as we're able to cry out, as Romans 8 tells us, that in the midst of our despair and darkness and difficulty, we can cry out to God as, as Abba, as a Father. There's a, a relational core experience that our identity is not external. Our identity is not based on what we do our identity is based on what we've been given. So let's road test this. That means that primarily your identity is not a spouse, a parent, an employee, a person who lives in the community, a civic-minded individual. Your identity is not based on what you do you primarily through faith in Christ have been given a familial reality in relationship to Christ, has been adopted as sons of God and daughters of God. That means that we are primarily first and foremost part of the family of God and adopted as sons and daughters. And thus, everything we do and how we live comes in relationship to that reality. So we are not primarily a spouse or a parent or an employee. We are primarily a son or daughter of God adopted into uh, a relationship with the Father through faith in Christ. And we serve in those realities based on that. We are a son of God who loves our spouse well, we are daughter of God who cares deeply for their children. But primarily and functionally, we are individuals first and foremost, and our identity is given to us through the familial bond of a relationship with Christ. That's good news. Just FYI. There is something so substantive and so rich in reality and what it means to experience this union, which Jer is going to talk about next week, of a a relationship that stands the test of time. That before the foundations of the world, Paul tells the church in Ephesus, you have been adopted. And brought in and brought close and brought near to be in this relational reality, in this familial truth, this experience, this relational experience with the God of the universe where you can call him Father. That is significant. But it's not yet finished. So, if we remember who we are in the context of life and the challenges that we face, that primarily and uh, substantially we are first and foremost sons and daughters of God. That He relates to us as a father relates to their children. And there is a relational significance and joy that is experienced as we find ourselves interacting with not this benevolent dictator or this God of the universe that's just telling us what to do and judging all the things we do wrong, we have a relationship with the God of the universe, the source of all truth, the the creator of the entire universe, and, and we call him and can, through faith in Christ, Father. You can plead before the God of the universe as a relational, familial reality where God is truly your Father. The weight of that should wash over us in such a significant way. But it's not done. In Ephesus, it's been said and written through some of the history books that they lived in what they called an abandonment culture, which meant that you were only as good as what service you could provide for someone else. Your value was distinguished based on your perceived ability which translated all the way down to brand-newborn infants. History would tell us that outside the theater in Ephesus, there was a garbage dump. In the midst of that garbage dump, what many individuals would do is after they had a baby, they would decide whether that baby had any value. And often, they would decide that it didn't quite measure up, and so they would take this young, brand-newborn infant to the garbage dump and leave it there. And in the process of those things, other people would come along, and there was actually a physician who wrote in Pergamum that there was a specific set of statistics that you could do some measurements of this young infant, this brand newborn baby, and decide whether or not it would be a strong slave, and then you would choose to adopt it. If not, it would be discarded and end up dying. They lived in a perverted abandonment Culture. And it's specifically that where Paul is moving us into the reality of adoption. Adoption as sons and daughters. And here's what he's saying that the most defining moment of your life and mine is not who threw you out, but who took you in. The most defining moment of life is not who has discarded you and said you have no more value or that you don't provide the things that I need you to provide for me. But the most defining moment of life, when we talk about adoption of the son, is not who threw you out, but who took you in. And then he goes on to explain the character and the reality and the experience of what we receive as those who've been taken in by the God of the universe. Remember who you are, but now we get a chance to picture whose you are. And here's how he describes it. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, who has blessed us in the beloved. Here's why that word is so significant. Imagine for a moment that Aaron and I weren't married and we were first dating. Uh, There was a, you know, an experience where I get to meet the in-laws, right? The first opportunity where she gets to communicate to her parents and introduce me as her boyfriend, right? And I think about that now with my girls, and I think no one's ever going to measure up, so don't even try. But somehow I had to live that experience. And her parents are incredibly gracious people anyway, but uh, imagine for a moment that, you know, uh, I'm I'm invited in, and I'm invited in to be a part of a relationship with her parents based on her description or her understanding of who I am. Now, if I just showed up and knocked on their door off the street and there was no one to represent me for who I am or uh, no description, just coming to their house, asking to be invited in and, and partake of a, a family meal. Now, they, they would likely be gracious enough to invite me in, but there would certainly be some hesitancy. When I'm invited in to the beloved, I'm invited in because of the invitation and the truth and the character of someone else. Someone else has described and they have trust and value in who that person is. And so because they know Aaron and they knew who she was and they understood her ability to make decisions, she's made better decisions than me. But nonetheless, she still makes good decisions. And in the context of those things, because of her love and care and concern for me, I was accepted into the beloved. I was allowed entry into their family based on her understanding of who I was. When we're talking about being accepted into the beloved, that's exactly what we're talking about. That there's an invitation of being part of the family of God on the merits and the basis of Christ alone, not on yours, nor on mine. I don't enter into the family of God because I am somehow God is lucky to have me on his team, how fortunate it was for him to make a good decision. None of that was true. I am based and have value and understand the significance of what it means to be adopted as his child on the merits, solely on the merits of Christ. I am accepted because of the merits of another. So we remember who you are, but now we remember whose we are. Remember the abandonment culture. Here's how the Bible describes in verse seven, the significance of not the most defining moment is not who threw you away, but who took you in. And here's what happened. This is the purchase price that you have as followers of Jesus Christ on you. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of, Of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his plan, which he set forth in Christ. There are two very significant truths, uh, words that Paul uses in this one long run on sentence that I think is some of the things that have become diminished or diluted in our understanding of adoption. Here's what Paul says. Because of the riches of his grace, he is lavished upon us. So riches is a a word that I think it does its best to translate as best we can. But the the image itself is though when we talk about the riches of God's grace, what we're talking about, or what the image is, is that there's a scale. And when you're weighing things, you're, you're weighing it to the point where you're trying to figure out how much, and measure it in some way. And what he's saying when he used the term riches is he's saying grace tips the scales. It's the high point on the scale where there is absolutely no more way in human mind to measure the reality of what we've been given in Christ. So there is both value and abundance. So what we're saying when we think about the riches of God's grace is we're saying grace has tipped the scales and there is nothing on one side of those scales that can somehow move the needle in the direction of diminishing that grace. There is so much abundance, so much significance that it's immeasurable. So when we think about those things, we're saying that nothing in life can outlive or outmeasure or tip the needle of God's grace. There is no amount of suffering that you and I can experience where somehow it would deplete or move the needle in any way of God's grace that is dispensed on your behalf. There is no amount of anxiety that you can experience that would rob you of the life that God has given you because of the abundance and value of his grace over your life. There is nothing that life can take from you that you haven't received in fullness because of the abundance of God's grace. It has tipped the needle to the point where it's immovable. You will never exhaust or diminish the grace of God in your life. As sons and daughters of the high king in which we can call father, that is awesome. But then he uses another term. And the other term is lavished, which means that he's not just saying, look at all this grace. I'm not going to give you any of it, but look how awesome it is. No, he's saying, not only is it of infinite value and immeasurable, but I am going to continue to regularly, freely dispense that grace on your life. I am not only the one who has and authors all grace, but I am that which dispenses all of that grace on your life. I'm freely giving you that grace. So as a, as a son or daughter of the most high God in relationship with him, where we could confess and call legitimately God our father through faith in Jesus Christ, we are recipients of a grace that is not only of infinite value and immeasurable, but regularly, chronically, consistently dispensed upon our life. You are never In, through faith in Christ, you are never a neglected orphan. You are a child of God. Like, that adoption, the biblical reality of what it means to be treated as a son or daughter and not a slave or servant is absolutely remarkable that should meet and be a rhythm in our life as we encounter every challenge and everything that we face. A fight with our spouse or our children. We haven't we have disciplined well. We've disciplined out of our own sin and anger. We're frustrated with people at work. As we enter into those moments and those challenges of life, what are we saying to ourselves? Well, we're saying what God already says of us. I'm a kid. I'm a child of God. Father, I need your help. I need you to know. I need to know what to do. I need your wisdom. I need the courage that only you can give me to be able to confess my sin to those around me and those I've hurt. I'm only able through your strength, and I can cry to you as my Father, and to trust that in the midst of catastrophic human pain that I've experienced, that somehow, in some way, I can move in to an intimate relationship with you, where you will be the source of all my comfort, that you will comfort those who mourn. The book of Psalmist gives us a great picture, and it tells us that I come to the Father like a weaned child. And and the image is that I'm coming to the Father just because He's my Father. Not because I need anything from Him. It's just because I want to curl up and get close. And I know that I'm always invited in because the God of all grace and the Father of the universe and the God who has called me His son or daughter and adopted me into His family has invited me and dispensed upon me an immeasurable grace that can never be depleted. You will ever and never, your sin, your bad decision-making, my bad decision-making, will never outrun the grace of God. Will always woo you into a deep and intimate relationship with him. And that's the call of the gospel to the entire world. There's an invitation for you to experience, not this dictator that rules over like Zeus throwing lightning bolts because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. The Christian truth of the gospel is communicating with utter regularity. You're invited in. You have a God who deeply loves you and values you and has enough grace for any moment in your life that wants to call you his kid. And through faith in Christ, you receive adoption as sons and daughters. You become part of the family through faith and trust. (laughs) I, I, you know, as I've been training and doing all these things... um, I got to be honest, like, runners have some of the greatest running shirts that I can imagine. Like, they have these things that are, I wouldn't say that they're expiring, but they're certainly humorous. They have all these shirts that describe all these things. Let me give you a couple from what I mean. Uh, run like your kids are looking for you. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I get that. I'm in. Uh, running dad, like a normal dad, only cooler. That one's on back order, so I'm going to have that coming up here pretty soon. No, I run because I love my body and carbs. I love carbs, right? I mean, these are great shirts. Uh, this seems like a lot of work for a free t-shirt. <laughs> I, I, I love running shirts, but there's one that captured my attention that I I, I think I want to change it a little bit as I, as I kind of put it and plant it on the top of our own understanding with regards to adoption. But there's one that um, that in, in the running, it's called Embrace the Suck. <laughs> and so basically what they're saying is, it's going to be painful. Like just wrap your arms around the fact that it's going to hurt and it's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. So just dive in knowing that it's going to be difficult. Just embrace the fact that it's not going to be all that much fun. I wonder if we would translate that as we think about our adoption as sons and daughters. and And maybe that would be some of our mantra. Embrace the grace. Like wrap your arms around the reality that you have a God who is infinite in his dispensing of immeasurable love. The riches of God's grace has been lavished upon you as sons and daughters. So why would it seem then that we need to continue to pick up our own lives, figure out what we need to do, uh, fix all of our problems, solve all of those things, and use the gospel as an appendage to our life? That we just use it as an attachment? No, no, you're you're a child of God. (laughs) You're a son or daughter. So in that familial relationship, that is the primary reality of our identity. And because of that identity, everything else functions from there. And so when we veer or stray it's not okay god i i'm really sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna pray more and i'm gonna read my bible more and i promise that as i do better you'll be proud of me one day how many of you have said that i have and yet the reality is it's just turning back and saying father i know the riches of your love and i need you to change me as your son god do a work in me that i cannot do on my own so, your life will never outlive the grace given to you in Christ. Our suffering will never outweigh the grace given to us in Christ. Our anxiety will never take away more life than grace gives us in Christ. That'd be enough for one Sunday morning, enough to digest, enough to soak in. But Paul's not done with his sentence. Here's what he says as he moves to helping us understand the purpose of life itself. said in verse 9, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose which he set forth again in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? Well to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we obtain an inheritance. So as a family we have all the riches and the blessings that have been given and that God is giving as part of his family. We have been predestined according to his purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of will. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might, might what? Be to praise, to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory let me tell you where your life and my life will end for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Your life will end in the glory of God. That's the purpose of his will, (laughs) that he's the one working and that ultimately at the end of the day, there's a a sense in which as adopted sons or daughters, the purpose of his will, the design of life itself would be that all of those who have found faith in Jesus Christ would be the result of the work of God in such a way that everyone would say, there is no way that person could have done that on their own. (laughs) There is no way they could have figured out life. There's no way they could have made the decisions they made. Something else had to be different, and that difference is Christ. And it will end in the praise of the glory of God because our lives lived as adopted sons and daughters results. In God receiving the glory for the work that he has done. Praise the Lord. There's a guy um, who teaches at, at Ozark Bible College. Um, his name is Michael DeFrazio, and, and he, he captured this text, this one sentence, saying this. Being saved is awesome. The God who saved you is awesome. Let's praise him. I mean, that's a central element of this text of, what he's moving us towards, being, being saved, being rescued, being adopted, given an, an inheritance, bought with the price. That's the term redemption that you've been paid for. You haven't been evaluated based on your merits like you would a slave. You've been purchased as though you have value by the God of the universe and adopted as a son or daughter. When you live in an abandonment culture that devalues all of life at every chance it gets. The reality of adoption stands in stark contrast to the truth that the world is parroting, or the falseness, I should say, <clears throat> that the world is parroting, that life only has value if we decide it has value. Uh, no, I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say that the Bible tells us that life has been given to us and authored by the God of the universe. And we find the fullness of life and the joy of that experience when we understand that that it is not us who figure out life, but it's us who receive life through adoption as sons and daughters. There's an anonymous quick poem that I'd like to read for you. And my guess, again, it's anonymous, so I'm just reading between the lines, written by someone who's, I don't know, probably walked through a lot of different trauma and tragedy, felt a level of loneliness and abandonment in their life. Here's what they say. In the heart of London City, Mid the dwellings of the poor, these bright, golden words were uttered. I have Christ, what want I more? Spoken by a lonely woman, dying on a garret floor, having no one earthly comfort. I have Christ, what want I more? Let's pray.